Well, if you will turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17. We're going to look at verses 24 through 26. The title of our sermon this morning is God Created. And our key words for our worshipers in training are creation, word, and spirit. And next week we will... uh, we will get back to Ephesians, and I have two more sermons in uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesian churches, and then we will move on from Ephesians. So we will finish that out uh, next week. Uh, but this morning I wanted to, if you recall, before I left uh, last month, we looked at Acts 17 and the providence of God. Uh, this morning I wanted us to consider uh, the work of God in creation. Now, it's likely that you cannot find uh, three words that are more uh, thought about, discussed, uh, philosophized over, theologized about, stories written about through time than those first uh, three words at the beginning of your Bible. In the beginning. And every culture, every people group, every philosophy, every religion has a story about the beginning. Where did it all come from? How did we get here, and why are we here, and who did all of it? If you've ever spent any time thinking about that, it really truly is an amazing consideration. What was it like before anything was? What was there, and for that matter, who was there? And can we even rightly speak of that time as being a time? And many of those questions, if you continue to follow them out, are confounding. Some of the answers are left only to the mystery of God. But the Bible does tell us a lot about creation. But of course, the difference between the story of creation in the Bible and the stories of creation that we hear from various religious traditions and cultures is that we know that what the Bible has to say is living, is active, is without error, And indeed cannot err. And while some scientists want us to believe that everything came about by random chance, by a bunch of things sort of colliding together out there somewhere and becoming what it is, the Bible doesn't rely on such fanciful things. In the Bible, God has told us what is true about where the world came from, who the world came from, and why the world was created. I wonder if you've ever thought about how amazing, just how amazing God's creation is. Listen to some things about the solar system. At the speed of light, which is approximately 186,000 miles per second, sunlight takes eight minutes to reach the earth. That same light takes five more hours to reach the furthest planet in our solar system, if it's still a planet today, I don't know, Pluto. After leaving our solar system, that same sunlight must travel for four years and four months to reach the next star in the universe. That is a distance of 25 trillion miles. 
Our galaxy contains hundreds of billions of stars, and yet the Milky Way is only one of of, uh, roughly one trillion galaxies in the universe. There are 20 galaxies in what is called our local group, and the next sort of grouping in the universe is called a supercluster of galaxies. And within our supercluster, the nearest cluster of galaxies called Virgo is 50 million light years away. A light year is the distance the light travels in one year. And to get a feel for the distance of just one light year, if you drove your car 55 miles per hour, it would take you 12.2 million years to travel one light year. Astronomers estimate that the distance across the universe is approximately 40 billion light years and that there are nearly 100 billion trillion stars in all the universe. And do you know what Psalm 147.4 says? It says, He determined the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Now listen, when my kids are acting wild, sometimes I forget their names, and I only have three of them. 100 billion trillion stars, and the Lord gives them all their names. God has determined the number of stars. He has named each and every one of them in this vast, nearly unimaginable universe. And this morning, we're going to look at three verses from Paul's address to the men of Athens and the Areopagus. And here, Paul is answering, in part, a fundamental question that everybody must answer. The question of beginnings. It's always there. And no doubt, the very people Paul was talking to shared some of those questions and perhaps even thought they had uh, some of the answers. So let's look together as Paul responds. Acts 17, beginning in verse 24. Paul is preaching and he says, The God who made the world and created everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place." Now, God's plan begins and ends with the mystery and wonder of creation. The very first words, and as a result of that, the very first doctrine that we find in the Bible is that of creation. In the beginning, God created. Genesis 1.1. And if you look at the end of your Bible as well, in the book of Revelation, God is dealing with creation again. But this time, it is new creation. And then in between Genesis and Revelation, we have this continued dialogue throughout the Bible, hundreds of references to God's work in creation and recreation. So I want us to focus our attention on God's sovereignty in all of this. It's a dominant theme through the Bible. It's an important thing for us to understand if we are to grasp what the Bible has to teach on the whole. It's going to form our worldview as we think about what life is, what life is about, why are we here, what are we doing, what does God intend for us. And when we're done, I hope uh, that we will see that the Bible teaches us 
that the heavens and the earth were created by God and ordered by God, and it was all done for God. And I hope we'll see this from a few different angles this morning. So the first thing for us to consider today is that God created the world out of nothing. Theologically, you'll hear the the Latin phrase ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. The word, or perhaps more accurately, uh, not the world, but uh, the universe, all of existence was created by God out of nothing. And he did that in a few ways. The first is by the will of God. Everything was created out of nothing by the will of God. God was not coerced. God was not forced to create, but it was by his own will that it was done. Creation was not the result of a meeting between consultants. It didn't involve engineers and architects and city planners. And much to God's praise and glory and honor, it did not include lawyers and politicians. No, out of his own will, God created And of course, if we think about that, it had to be this way because there was nothing. There was God. Who would he have consulted? And God not only formed the universe by his will, but he willed that all matter, that every particle and subparticle and ion and molecule that would exist to make all other things exist would exist out of absolutely nothing. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 11 and verse 3 says, By faith, we understand that the world was created by the word of God so that what is seen was made out of things which do not appear. This great God of might and power spoke and creation came forth. Now, nobody you know has created out of nothing. You may paint a picture on a blank canvas... But that canvas and that brush and those paints already existed. God was working with nothing. And to a large extent, we cannot even fathom what that is like or what that means. Absolutely nothing. And it was done according to His will. And if you read the account of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, you see that constant refrain. God said, let there be. And then there was. In other words, God was commanding these things to become what they are, and in issuing His command, they were. It was all coming about by His will alone. God said, let there be light, and there was light. But I wonder if you've ever thought about the concept of light in the first place. God said, let it be. But God also decreed that light would be what it was and is. Light is light because God willed it to be light. And that should confound us because we will never come to a place where we fully comprehend the reality of what God did by His will in His creation. Isaiah 40, 28 says that God is the creator of the ends of the earth and that His understanding is unsearchable. It's no wonder that the Apostle John, in considering the work of God in creation was brought to worship in Revelation 4. He wrote, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. 
So everything was created out of nothing by the will of God. But we also see in the Bible that everything was created out of nothing by the Word of God. Now, more specifically, I'm speaking about God's creative Word being Christ Himself. Jesus Christ, as the eternal Word, is the Creator of all things. Now, many people fail to recognize this, but in many ways, while creation is the work of the Trinity, and we're going to see each person of the Trinity working, the doctrine of creation really centers on the pre-incarnate Christ. Paul addresses this in Colossians 1 and verse 16. It says, all things were created through him and for him. Or those well-known words at the beginning of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Again, the writer of Hebrews, chapter 1 and verse 2. In these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. So in some astonishing way, every atom in the physical universe and every entity in the spiritual realm was brought into existence and belongs to Christ by rights. Even more amazing, the universe that God created depends on Christ moment by moment for its ongoing existence. Again, He is before all things and in Him all things hold together, Colossians 1. In other words, the universe needs Christ. And everything, I'm not just talking about the physical things that we see, but light and, and air and wind and sound and speed, everything would cease to exist if Christ didn't exert His powerful will to keep it existing. And the fact that much of this physical world can be analyzed and, and understood in strictly physical terms does not, in the Bible's view, impair the sovereign sway of God over every part of it. So, for example, the writers of the Bible weren't dumb. They understood something about something like the water cycle. They knew it rained, the ground was wet, the sun came, it evaporated, it went to the clouds and the sky, and all this cycle that takes place with water. They understood that. But when they wrote about God sending rain, they wanted to focus on the will of God and the word of Christ and not spend the time explaining the process by which all of it happened. They understood that the processes that take place in the world are the creation of God and upheld by the word of Christ. We recognize, we acknowledge Modern physics identifies as the forces that bind everything together. We don't deny those. We, we are thankful for those. We rejoice that God has given us the ability and the opportunity to study those things, to understand them. But this does not prevent us from recognizing that Jesus upholds everything by His powerful Word. The physical forces binding everything together were created by and are upheld by Jesus Christ. So all the universe was created out of nothing by the will of God and by the Word of God. And we see also it was created out of nothing by the Spirit of God. Have you ever stopped to think about those words in Genesis 1 and verse 2? 
It says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, we don't know how the Spirit was hovering over the mass of creation, but we know that He was. It's a mystery. We know that it happened at the beginning of creation, and this even before God said, let there be light. In preparing the world, in preparing the universe to be all that it was to be, to be what it is, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And until that happened, all was formless and empty and lacking in order and filled with confusion. In other words, the world, the universe, was, was chaotic. So to make it what God was to make it as a thing of beauty, to make it what we have today, even though it is a fallen world, it was needful that the movement of the Spirit of God take place. I don't know how the Spirit works on physical matter, but we know that God, who is Spirit, created matter. He formed it. He sustains it. And yet one day He will deliver it from the pit that it currently resides and, and all to the glory of God. But without the Spirit of God... The material, the physicality of this world must have remained forever in chaos. Only as the Spirit came did the work of creation begin. And it's not just the material world we see the work of the Spirit in creation. It's also you and me. In Job 33, 4, it says, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Isn't that wonderful? You and I are a special creation by the Spirit of God. No life is a mistake. No one is here by mistake. And our lives as they begin and when they end are not a mistake in their timing. Babies, children, elderly people, none of it is a mistake. And so any attempt to end that life is an affront to the Spirit of God. Spirit of God who has created that life. And we must value life because God has made it what it is for His purposes. The Spirit of God is at work breathing new life into men and women throughout all the ages. So the Spirit of God was very active and continues to be very active in the work of creation. Along, again, with the will of God, the Word of God. We have the Spirit of God. But we also see that everything was created out of nothing by the mind of God. Proverbs 3, 19 and 20 says, The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, He established the heavens. By His knowledge, the deeps broke open, and the clouds dropped down the dew. Psalm 136, 5 was addressed to Him who, by understanding, made the heavens. And Psalm 104, 24, O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. You see, God's creative work was not an afterthought. It was not something He sort of did a little bit of at a time. Now, if you've ever gone house hunting, you've probably visited a home or two where someone built the house and a few years later they decided... 
Uh, we want a little more space over here. So they add something to the side, and then they decide this room isn't suiting the purposes we need, so we're going to change that a little bit. And if they're not very good at doing all of that, it just looks like a bunch of pieces put together that don't belong with one another. God didn't create that way. The things that God made were not just sort of put together along the way thinking, this will be good with these things over here, and it may not fit together perfectly, but it's functional. Now, God didn't work that way. As the God who knows the beginning from the end, He knew how it would all fit together, and He knew it would work together in perfect harmony. Think of it. On the earth, we are the perfect distance from the sun so that we don't just get burned up to a crisp. Now, in August, it feels like maybe that's not true, but it's true. We are in just the right place in the orbit of the planets. So there's gravity to keep us tethered to the ground as the earth spins just slow enough so that everything doesn't go flying off into space. And every now and then, the earth even reorients itself to make sure it stays on that orbit. It's magnificent. That doesn't happen by accident. Think of how God designed creation here on earth to sustain itself or, or the intricate and amazing ways the human body can heal itself. Your blood will clot to stop bleeding. Your skin will sweat to keep you from overheating. You will shiver to keep warm when it's cold. You have pain receptors to keep you safe. You have, we talked about this in Sunday school, praise God you have taste buds to enjoy food. And we need not look any further than this room to see that God loves variety. He created plants and animals and all kinds of things differently, and yet all of it has his stamp upon it. Genesis 1 describes vividly the forms of life that filled the earth and teemed in the sea. The landscape crawled with animals, the, the sea swarmed with fish, the birds flew across the heavens, the great diversity, the abundance of life, it all reflects the bounty of its creator. In fact, each act of creating was an act of differentiating and diversifying, and it shows the complementary nature of the created order. And all of that is in contrast to the uniformism, the sameness that man is trying to emphasize in modern society. God created differences, and we should rejoice and delight in them, not cast them aside. There was tremendous wisdom in the diversity that God made. We see that particularly in the sexes, in men and women. It's a beautiful, intricate, important contrast. God made men and women so that together they could bring about new life. It's amazing. And while all of Western society wants to eliminate those distinctions between the sexes, as Christians, we need to uphold and affirm the important uniqueness and beauty of those differences. And the same can be said about various ideas and about various races. Listen, racism is an affront to the diversity that God has created. It's not as a, something to be divided over and opposed by. It's to show the creative power of God, that he's made us differently and yet in so many ways the same because we're created together in his image to reflect his glory. In God's wisdom, he also provided for the stability 
and the continuity of the life he had created. Each was to produce according to its kind. And so plants yielded seeds and fruit trees, and they were made bearing fruit in which was, within which was their seed. The same was true of animals of the sea and land, each reproducing according to its kind, as we mentioned already, uh, human beings. So God provided for the ongoing life of everything he had made. And life has basically been the same in terms of it coming about from generation to generation. It has been continuous. It has been stable. And not only then does life teem with great variety, it also is sustained in a very fine balance. So you see, God was so wise in how he created. It wasn't a pieced together operation. It was intricately planned down to the finest detail, and it is pulled off day by day by day without a hitch. So the world was created out of nothing by the will of God, by the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, and by the mind of God. This was God's plan. This was God's design. This was all God's doing. But we have to consider, when God created, what was the result? The scriptures show us that the world God created was perfect. We looked at this this morning in Sunday school. As you read through the creation account in Genesis 1, you see that after every day of creating, God said, it is good. And then after the final day of creating, God says, Uh, It says, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the Apostle Paul declares, everything created by God is good. He adds, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Everything God made is good. But you ask, what about the evil? What about corruption in the world? But you see, creation is not the problem. Sin is the problem. Material existence is not evil in and of itself. That's that's a heresy. That's called Gnosticism. When God created, He created things in such a way that they could be utilized, that they could be enjoyed by man. But in our sinful nature, we have distorted and misused and abused the gifts of God. So, for example, God gave us things like food and drink and sex. These are gifts from God. Mankind has taken all three of them and distorted them and turned them into sinful excesses. So we have gluttony and drunkenness and all kinds of sexual perversions. So much so that we often find ourselves talking about these things and rejecting these things as if they're evil and wrong in and of themselves, not identifying the fact that they are only evil and wrong when used outside of the context for which God has designed them. Paul tackles this head on in Romans chapter 1. We need to be reminded that his explanation in Romans chapter 1 was our hearts prior to our salvation in Christ. You remember those words very fondly. I mean, not fondly, but very clearly. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. 
or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts of, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. You see, that's Paul's description. And, and notice that Paul doesn't identify these created things as being evil. He doesn't say that things are the problem. The problem is that sinful mankind with sinful hearts worship and serve what is created instead of the one who created them. And why did God create the way He created? Why did He create the things He created? So that we might acknowledge that everything that we have, everything that we see, everything that exists is to move us to thankfulness and to worship that we would honor God as God. And these things, these created things, these things developed... There are things developed by mankind that are used in a way that is evil, yes, without a doubt. However, a thing in and of itself doesn't have a moral nature. It wasn't created with a moral nature or inclination. You, created in the image of God, you have a nature which corresponds to the created world in a moral or immoral manner. And in such, your actions, uh, the way you act, is the determining factor in whether or not something has become an idol or an instrument for evil. But it is your using it that makes it so. So the problem isn't things. The real problem is the heart of man, the evil intentions of men. Taking something that can be used for good and instead using it for evil in the same way we do with all sorts of things. The Times of London had an article one time entitled, What's Wrong with the World? And a reply came in and it said, I am, yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. And it's true. That's the way we all need to think. What's wrong with the world? I am. What's wrong with my marriage? I am. What's wrong with parenting? I am. And we think this way because we understand our own hearts. You see, the problem is not out there. The problem is not the created order because the created order is created by God. It is, it is good because God called it good. It is good because it is serviceable, not to the individual human being, but to the revelation of God's perfections. It serves its purpose to do what it was created to do. And to the person who regards it so, it is also good because it makes known to him the God to whom to know is eternal life. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So what's the point? God created sovereignly out of nothing. And he created everything and it was perfect. But why? What's the point? Why are we here? Well, God created the world for a purpose. And as we end this morning, I want to think of this in two categories. The first is that God created the world for His own glory. 
The Bible is filled with the truth that God created all things in such a way that He Himself is the end of all of His works. And by the fact that He is the Creator, He too then is also the beginning of all things. He says, I am the first and I am also the last, and beside me there is no God. He says repeatedly in the book of Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, which is and was and which is to come, the Almighty. So God is the beginning in that He is the fountain from which all things originate. And He is the end. He is the purpose for why all things exist. Romans eleven thirty six. Paul writes, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Glory be to Him forever and ever. Amen. And again, we saw in Colossians chapter 1, For by Him all things are created, that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created by Him and for Him. Proverbs sixteen four. The Lord has made all things for Himself. Everything God does is ultimately for His own glory. God's greatest purpose in all of creation, in all of history, in all of His works, is to bring glory onto Himself. We talk about things like redemption and salvation and restoration as the greatest works and focus of God, but they're, they're, they're not. God's ultimate focus, His ultimate goal is glorifying Himself. And I know that may sound strange to you if you've never thought about that before, but let's think about it for a minute. It is fundamental to how you think about creation. Why did God create what He created and the way He created it? If you think about it negatively, if God's purpose was not His own glory, God would be an idolater. Here's what we mean by that. For God to value anything higher than Himself and His own glory would turn Him into an idolater because whatever that was that was more valuable to Him than His own glory would be an idol. It would be thought of as greater than the greatest. So if your salvation then is God's highest aim, you've become an idol to God. But God is the highest, and God is the greatest good. So He must be most important to Himself. And to have anything less in that place would make God to be less than He is. So you and I, you, you and I cannot insist that the people of the world worship us. <laughs> that when we, uh, when we are going around, people acknowledge us, that they sing songs about us, that they meet together and talk about us, uh, that they gather and study us, uh, that we insist that we tell their neighbors about us. If you did that, uh, I don't think you would have a whole lot of friends. But God can do that. And in doing that, He is not an egomaniac because nothing is greater than Him. Nothing is perfect like Him. Nothing is worthy like Him. And He's created it all. And if God were not infinitely devoted to creating all things to be centered on Him and devoted to Him and bringing glory to Him, we would find no true satisfaction because our focus and our attention would be diverted away from that which is greatest and most precious and most fulfilling to something lesser. 
something that cannot provide us with hope and a future. I hope you're understanding this. But if God does, in fact, direct all of His sovereign power and infinite wisdom in creation to maximize His own glory, then we have a foundation on which we can stand and rejoice because we have a great and worthy God. And so creation is God's public display of the glory that already exists in Him and has eternally existed between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God did not create because He needed something. Please do not believe that God created because He needed companions. God was not lacking in some perfection that was going to be supplied or filled up by creation. Creation's not something that He needed to, to complete Himself. Creation is the overflow of His perfections. It's the overflow of all that He is, that He could display His glory more, uh, more widely. And so the pleasure God has in all of His works of creation and redemption is nothing more than God delighting in His own glory as it's displayed in all that He has done. This is why God has done what He has done, from creation to consummation, for the preservation and display of His glory. Well, lastly, the reason God created the world is that people might worship and revere Him. Brothers and sisters, if you get this, if you contemplate this truth and and grab hold of this truth, it will change you. It will change how you've always thought about God. It will change the way you read your Bible. And I assure you, it will change in that you will have a greater love and thankfulness for God than you ever did before because you finally see that it isn't about you. It's about a great and glorious God that is far greater and far bigger and far more glorious than you ever thought. So, so much so that the greatest thing He can do for you and for me is to give us Himself and to put an imprint of His character and His nature and His law and love on all of creation. Yes, God's desire for you is that you be content. But the Bible is abundantly clear that you are only fully content when you are communing with Him. Worldly people cannot understand this. The world believes that God is a cosmic killjoy. He's a, he's a heavenly scrooge. He's an egomaniac. But God knows what is best for us. And He wants what is best for us. And what is best for us is Him. The psalmist wrote that the Lord satisfies you with good as long as you live. The operative thing there being the Lord. The Lord is satisfying us. He wants you to find satisfaction. But He's created all things to find their satisfaction, not in pursuing the desires of the flesh, not in pursuing the imaginations of the mind, or in misusing and abusing and perverting the gifts of creation, but in pursuing God, communing with God, resting in God and the Lord Jesus Christ. God created you and I so that we might worship and revere Him. And in doing so, His ultimate end in receiving glory and our greatest need in finding satisfaction in Him, they come together to be one and the same end. We're not adding to His glory. We're magnifying it. When we worship, when we acknowledge God as God, when we speak and love and honor the truth about God as He intended, it's a great illustration 
from Dr. Piper about this. We're, it's like we're putting our eye up to a telescope and seeing more clearly and more magnificently than we ever have before. Now, when I look through a telescope at the moon, I'm not changing the moon. It's not changing its shape. It's not changing uh, its details. It's not changing its design. But when I look through a telescope, it becomes more clear. It becomes more vivid. I see more details. I see the intricacies of it. Nothing about the moon changes, but to me, it becomes more amazing and more beautiful. And in the same way, when I know more about God, when I embrace more of God, when I gain more of God, I am seeing Him more clearly. I am seeing Him more vibrantly. I'm seeing Him more fully. And that is what it means that I'm giving glory to God. I am seeing Him for more of who He is, that I might delight in Him all the more. And so instead of seeking attention and glory for myself like I naturally desire, I instead give a reflection of that back to the world about Him. Brothers and sisters and friends, we have a great and glorious God who's created us. He created a perfect world out of nothing by His own will, by His Word, and by His Spirit, and by His wisdom to bring Himself glory that we might worship and revere Him forever and ever. He is His greatest gift to us. And so we must enjoy that gift in the way that He has intended Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for your glorious work of creation. For a work that you have done to display your power, your wisdom, your creativity. And we thank you, Father, that your ultimate end is to receive glory because in doing so you have revealed to us the greatest thing that we could have revealed to us, and that is Yourself. And we pray, Father, that we acknowledge You as You are, that we not worship the creature, but that we put all of our hope and all of our assurance in the Creator. I pray, O God, that You would move in our hearts to continue to worship and revere You as God. And that as we go about life, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do it all to your glory, that we would fulfill your purposes for why you created. And I pray, God, that anyone who's here this morning who has not acknowledged you as the creator worthy of worship and worthy of giving their life over to you, that you would be pleased to give them new life, to recreate them in Christ Jesus that they would be in Him now and forever. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.